Are you an effective communicator? Do you clearly express your thoughts, feelings, wants, and needs? What about listening to others? Do you pay attention to the people around you? Are you empathetic? Do your loved ones, friends, colleagues, and acquaintances feel comfortable opening up to you about their thoughts and feelings? Effective and empathetic communication is critical for building relationships and fostering productive environments. Having said that, if communication doesn't come easily, don't worry. Communication skills can be cultivated. In fact, speaking and listening both require practice and patience. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and even though I communicate for a living, at times I find it difficult to share about my feelings or to listen to others when I think I know what's best or when I'm motivated by self-interest or when my own heightened emotions are interfering with my ability to practice empathy. Before we delve into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people and to thank Indigenous people past, present, and future for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is Episode 5 of Season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business, Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. This episode is communicating and emoting, speaking and listening in the workplace. Many people hear the word communication and immediately think about how they talk to others. But I want to begin our discussion about communication by stressing the importance of listening and empathy. And to be clear, when I say listening, I don't mean hearing what another person is saying so that we can build a counterargument and convince them of our point of view. I mean being receptive and open-minded to the perspectives and experiences of others. Tamar Pearson Brown, Associate Dean for Equity and Inclusive Excellence, is a clinical associate professor of law at University of Pittsburgh's School of Law and director of the Health Law Clinic which operates as a medical legal partnership with UPMC, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. She told me that she and her colleagues at Pitt are intentional about implementing habits of inclusion, one of which is receiving and believing. Receiving and believing is the idea that I'm going to hear narratives that might not align with my experience of the world. And sometimes when we are presented with new information, we can be critical or we can want to distance ourselves from that narrative because it creates discomfort. That's not how I see the world. And and your story is asking me to see the world in a way that I'm not used to seeing. And so rather than changing my perspective, I think there's a very human tendency to just reject things that don't align with the way that we're used to seeing the world. And so the habit of receiving and believing is just the practice of, you know what, I'm going to take in the stories that I get from the people around me today. And some of them might be consistent with my experience and some of them might be different. But my commitment to inclusion is to take it all in and to believe the speaker when they're relaying their experience, right? It's the discipline of saying, the person who is in the best position to tell the truth about their experience is the person themselves. It is essential to listen to the experiences of others without attempting to override or negate them. 
Jeff Maynard is a financial services professional and full-time entrepreneur who, prior to his transition to entrepreneurship, worked in IT and telecommunications, and prior to that, he served eight and a half years in the United States Navy. Jeff shared that the practice of being open to the feelings and experiences of others is something he seeks to incorporate both personally and professionally, considering he and his wife, Rocky Maynard, are partners in business as well as in life. Here's Jeff sharing a saying that helps him to remember to honor the feelings of others, even when doing so can be humbling. One of my favorite sayings, I think, is maybe Richard Branson, but he says, you know, when somebody tells you you've hurt them, you don't get to tell them that you didn't. Sure. Leading with listening can be a vulnerable practice, but it's also empowering because it allows for a person to become attuned to the wants, needs, and experiences of others, and because it helps the listener, when they do speak, to be able to address issues directly and comprehensively. That's something with which Caroline Heffernan has firsthand experience. Caroline is an assistant professor in the School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management at Temple University, whose areas of interest center around the application of allyship in sport and gender in sport leadership. Someone noticed this about me a few years ago. They're like, you will never talk over an individual. Right. Like, and that's because you're listening to everything that is being said. So I don't talk over my colleagues. I'm not going to be the loudest voice in the room, but I know how to pick my words very intentionally and be calm and not be reactionary. Because for whatever reason, and this was something that one of my coaches said to me, she was like, You need to recognize that when you speak, people listen. And I was like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. But I noticed that and I didn't necessarily think it had carried over to me being a professor and someone who chats at people who are dead behind the eyes at some point in time. But I had a student who I really didn't think liked me for a really long time or just thought I had some good one-liners and he included, he was like, I learned how to like command a room from watching you. Imagine if we all cultivated the capacity to pay attention, pick our words intentionally, remain calm and non-reactionary, and command the attention of a room when we spoke. Wouldn't environments comprised of people who brought those skills into their communications invite honest and open communication? There's a term utilized a lot in DEI work that describes the type of environment that enables people to share openly and vulnerably and to know that their voices and their views matter. The term is psychological safety. And knowing that we're safe to bring ourselves forward doesn't mean not addressing issues that arise. On the contrary, Tom Edwards, an associate professor of instruction in engineering management and director of the Department of Engineering, Technology, and Management at Temple University, is an organizational expert who utilizes research, practical application, and teaching to drive innovation in the pursuit of organizational missions. Tom shared with me that part of interpersonal effectiveness and psychological safety is cultivating an environment where people can and do speak up. But he said that how we speak is of critical importance to maintaining team cohesion and creating and maintaining supportive and invested workplace cultures. You've got to do both. You've got to be technically competent. That's kind of table stakes. But then you have to have this other set of tools. You have to understand 
just exactly what you talked about, the interpersonal skills. And thank you for calling them interpersonal instead of soft skills, because that makes my head explode when people refer to it as soft skills. It's things like knowing that, and, and there's, some, there's some research that backs this up. There's a, a scholar named Tepper who dove into uh, abusive supervision. And his definition of abusive is really low. It's like any interaction between an employee and a boss that leaves the employee feeling bad about themselves. So any kind of socially undermining behavior, you know, sarcasm, all of this stuff that most of us have seen at one point or another in our lives actually damages organizational effectiveness. You absolutely positively have to hold people accountable. When somebody's supposed to do something, they've got to get it done. And if you don't do that, the whole purpose of having an organization, a company, a university falls apart. But the research shows if you do that too harshly, if you, you know, like a table banging, you know, demand for accountability without taking into account things beyond people's control and et cetera, et cetera, you get bad outcomes. You get further, and research shows this, that people hide the root cause of problems. So if people hide the root cause of problems, they don't get fixed and they happen again. That's really bad. And it also can crush what's referred to as organizational citizenship behavior, which is a big fancy word that basically means people that do things because it's good for their organization. It's not in their job description. Nobody knows that they're doing it. They're not going to get measured on it, criticized for not doing it, rewarded for doing it. They just do it because they're a good citizen. Abusive supervision will crush that. You have to have that. That's the glue that makes an organization work. Latanya Wilkins is the founder of the Change Coaches LLC, an organization dedicated to creating revolutionary leadership development, culture change, and extraordinary personal growth. She is also the author of Leading Below the Surface, How to Build Real and Psychologically Safe Relationships with People Who Are Different from You. She shared that below-the-surface leaders are the glue that make organizations work and explained that she sees below-the-surface leadership as the polar opposite of abusive supervision. That's why she's invested in supporting leaders whose styles emphasize empathy, increase psychological safety, and foster cultures of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Because LaTanya stressed the importance of psychological safety in workplace environments, I wanted to explore the concept both internally and externally. How much of psychological safety for you has come from outside of yourself and then how much comes from inside? I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. And so now you're making me think about a blog (laughs) post or a newsletter that I need to write. So I think it has to be congruent. If your level is high, like your level of putting yourself in safe environments and accepting yourself so you feel a little bit more safe in the world, right? Where you're like, I am who I am. So I feel safe. I'm not going to be afraid. And so that's that safety. But it's really magical when the org matches that. And that's really hard to find. And so I would say that I did have to have it myself first. It's very hard to maintain when you're in an environment that's not validating, acknowledging your identities. But I will say that it's a non-starter if you don't have it. And you do want to find it in the company as well. And if you fight it in yourself, you're more likely to fight it in the company. Building self-awareness through listening to ourselves and being curious about our own identities and experiences is essential. In fact, it's foundational. 
If we want to be ourselves with others, we have to first know who we are and how we feel. And if we can tune into ourselves, that will enable us to be more authentic, not only personally, but professionally. When you bring your emotional self to your work, how does that change your interactions? It forces me to slow down. There's so much pressure to do, 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 and go, go, go. But when I stop and remind myself to be human with this person who's talking to me or be human with this person who's asked me to help them think through a challenge that they're facing, it really forces me to slow down my practice, which I think also helps me to be a better practitioner overall. When we are in fast think mode, we're more likely to trip up on our implicit biases, on our assumptions. When we slow down and we're able to be more reflective, we're able to make new connections. We're able to check our biases and and bring the curiosity, right? We're able to approach challenges from a variety of perspectives rather than from the perspective that has the deepest worn in groove in our minds. And so because problem solving, which is the bulk of what lawyers do, requires creativity of thinking, when I remember to bring my empathy to my clients, it slows me down and then I can access all of those other tools. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting 
diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu slash ddp to learn more. Later on in this episode, we'll explore ways to expand our skill set and become more empathetic and engaged communicators while better understanding differences in communication styles. But first, it's important to consider what happens in workplace cultures where people are forced to put the lid on who they are and or how they feel. It's exhausting. And I think that it, it relates to a literature on surface acting. It looks at people who are in service occupations who have to put on a smile, even in the face of an angry customer or an angry patient. So either nurses, retail, whatnot. And we find that in the long term, it's not good for your health to have to behave in a way that is inauthentic to how you're feeling in the moment. And so, yeah, it's definitely for me walking, you know, determining the balance between when do I just want to let them know that I've had enough and I have to just say this the way that I want to say it. And when is the cause so important that I need to be mindful of how my emotional cues might be affecting those around me. That was Crystal Harold, an associate professor in human resource management and a Paul Anderson research fellow at Temple University's School of Business. Prior to pursuing her current career path, Crystal worked as a strategic human resources consultant for numerous governmental agencies, including the Air Force, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and the Department of the Interior. And yes, to Crystal's point, it's important to be able to express how we feel while also being mindful of how we express our feelings and to whom. On one hand, the literature says that it is functional and healthy to express anger when you have it in the workplace. And holding it in is not good because that anger will come out at some point and probably counterproductively. But there's also a literature that says that emotional contagion is a real thing. And if I have a negative mood or I'm feeling angry or cynical about something and I express it in that way, it can be negatively received and affect others. And so there's research that talks about, you know, being strategic in terms of expressing of, of anger. So when it gets to the point where something needs to get done or has gone past, I guess, a line of what is acceptable, then use that anger at that point. But if all you do is express anger all of the time, people will kind of become inoculated to it and just be like, well, that's just so-and-so. Don't listen to them because they're always angry. It's important to express our emotions and also to be strategic about how we do that. 
On a personal note, I found that writing can be an extremely helpful way to get clear on how I'm feeling and what I want, which then helps me to communicate that with others. So whether it's writing a journal entry to vent my frustration and identifying a few key points that I bring into an interaction, or writing something that will eventually be published, the practice of putting pen to paper, yes, I'm old school, I put pen to paper, (laughs) allows me to get clarity and then decide what, if anything, I want to share with others. And I'm far from alone in finding written communication to be a powerful tool. For many, writing inspires change, builds community, and brings a voice to those who have not historically been listened to. Travel Anderson is an award-winning journalist, social curator, and world changer who has dedicated their career to centering the stories of those in the margins, gray spaces, and the intersections of life. Named to the Roots 2020 list of the 100 most influential African Americans, Travel has used their words to make an impact on the world, starting with themselves. Who do I write for? Um, first and foremost, I write for myself. I write to to feel seen. I write to create an archive of my existence and my perspective and my lens and my prism. And, and then I write for people who look like me, who love like me, who move through the world like me, both those who are my contemporaries, who are around me, who are on this earth now, and those that will come. Over the last couple of years in particular, I've been doing a lot of work and a lot of thinking around like the importance of archives for Black folks, for queer folks, for trans folks, for non-binary people, for femmes, and realizing how so many of these more traditional archives, we, we don't exist in many of them. And if we do exist in many of them, it's, it's through the perspective and the vantage of these white primarily men, and how that necessarily skews one's understanding of what life was like for people like me who existed before I touched down on this earth. And how the lack of our presence or the lack of nuanced representations of our presence in the archive necessarily leads to the conversations that we have today By expanding representation and opening the door to constructive conversations, the written word can support both readers and writers in growing professionally as well as personally. Marta Rusick is a digital storyteller with a passion for helping mission-driven organizations tell their stories. She works full-time as a social media strategist for a nonpartisan, pro-democracy, legal nonprofit in Washington, D.C., and maintains a freelance client roster as a storyteller for hire. Marta told me that writing has been integral to her self-development. Writing to, to learn and to unlearn has been really pivotal for me, both you know, writing to learn something new and then looking at my writing to say, okay, I fell short there and I'm, I'm not going to write about that again, or I'm going to present that information in a way that does not imply certain stereotypes or things that are clearly out of date or ignorant. And I think having that grace with ourselves that we are flawed human beings, we are complex human beings, there's a lot that we still have to learn and we'll always have to learn is a healthy mindset to have so that you're not constantly beating yourself up to the point where you then become a person with a very narrow focus and you're like, well, I, I screwed up on that and I don't want that to happen to me again. So I guess I'm just not going to learn anything new. 
And that's a really problematic way to approach life. It's, it doesn't help anybody, least of all you. Approaching our interactions with a mindset of growth and learning is essential. And to Marta's point, it's okay to make mistakes as long as we course correct and evolve. All of us make errors in communication. If we didn't, we wouldn't be human. Those mistakes can occur with any and every form of human interaction, from what we write to what we say to what we don't say to what we do and don't do. Lily Zhang is a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist and consultant and the author of three published books, the most recent of which is DEI Deconstructed, Your No-Nonsense Guide to Doing the Work and Doing It Right. Lily works with organizations around the world to create the equitable, inclusive, and just organizations of the future. Here's what they had to say about mistakes. I think people's fear of making mistakes is is rooted in maybe not a completely accurate perception of accountability and quote-unquote cancel culture, but there is some truth in it which is that people in general, stakeholders, employees, consumers, are really, really tired of folks avoiding accountability. People are really tired of folks saying one thing and doing another, of folks asking for feedback and never taking it. And so I think that has lent itself toward this undercurrent in the the present day conversation on accountability that's basically, look, if you mess up, you're out because we don't have patience for people trying to bullshit us. And I get where that comes from. I really get where that comes from. And it scares a lot of folks because they don't want to be that person that's excoriated for things. They don't want to be that person that makes a mistake and gets taken out. And I talk a little bit about this in my second book and a little bit about this in my third, but it comes down to trust. You'll find that if you don't trust someone, if you don't trust that they'll do the right thing, if you don't trust that they're a good person, if you don't trust that they have your interests in mind, and then they make a mistake or do something bad, your immediate reaction will say, I knew it. I knew it. I knew they were a bad person. Time to take them out. But for anyone that has close friends, you'll know that mistakes are a normal part of any relationship. But the thing that makes it so your closest friends don't cut you off when you make a small slight is trust. It's because they trust that you will make mistakes, but you'll make things right. They trust that you may do something bad while still being a good person. They trust that at the end of the day, you care about them and you're willing to do what it takes to support that relationship. And so what I say to folks that are worried about these situations is I say, look, you will always have some people that see every mistake as an opportunity to take jabs at you. But ideally, if you can make it so that the people who matter most to you trust you and your employees trust you and your peers trust you, then you should be able to make those mistakes safely. Not forever, obviously, because accountability is important, but you should be able to be vulnerable, to put yourself out there, to do your best. We demystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder we embark, invite the light to send the dark. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other? 
When it comes to communication, vulnerability is important. It's also important to recognize that power dynamics have a lot to do with who does and who doesn't feel safe enough or empowered enough to ask for what they want and need. I spoke with Jackie Lipton, a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh, an attorney, a literary agent at the Tobias Literary Agency, and the author of numerous academic texts. Jackie also wrote Law and Authors, a legal handbook for writers, which is a must-read book for authors looking to know their rights, increase their self-advocacy skills, and understand the intricacies of the publishing industry. How much do societal and systemic power dynamics influence the negotiations or the conversations? Well, they do a lot. I should put it in context and say that that's always the case. So whenever you negotiate any deal in any industry, there's always power dynamics. There's never equal bargaining power. I mean, that's a myth. There's never very rarely a situation where two parties to a contract have equal bargaining power. So you always go in with that in mind. Then when you take into account historical inequities in, well, again, probably every industry and publishing is no exception, you have to sort of take account of that and you can play that in different ways depending on the context. As an attorney, a literary agent, and an educator, Jackie has experience negotiating in a variety of situations with a variety of power dynamics. But there are many considerations that go beyond differences in power that it's helpful to consider when entering into conversations. Deborah Tannen is a professor at Georgetown University and a widely acclaimed, extensively published, best-selling author, best known for her book, You Just Don't Understand, Women and Men in Conversation, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for nearly five years. Her other titles are too numerous to list here, so we'll put that information in the show notes. But I'll tell you that Deborah's interests center around how language affects relationships. How do power dynamics play into conversational styles? We always are balancing two dynamics. One is what you might call the power dynamic, who's up, who's down. And the other is what I think of as the connection dynamic. Are we close or distant? Are we included or excluded? And both of them are there all the time. So absolutely, in a work situation, the person who has the higher rank, especially if it's a boss, will probably be listened to whenever they start to talk by anybody. (laughs) And people who are much lower rank might find it harder. But it's especially dramatic, I think, in, in a work situation where ranks are so, or a military situation where ranks are so clear. Sometimes power dynamics work in ways that are surprising. Something that linguists and others studying conversation have done quite a bit of research on is what we call indirectness. Do you say what you mean in what we might say in so many words, or do you say things that don't literally mean what you want to say, but people know what you mean, and they know how literally you mean what you say? And this is universal, every culture, and it goes on all the time. You're on a phone conversation, and you say, well, it's really been great talking to you then the other person knows that you need to go. (laughs) You didn't say, it's two o'clock, I have to go. (laughs) You could say that, but you don't. Most of us don't. As Deborah points out, most of us don't always say exactly what we mean. 
That's not to say we should or shouldn't say exactly what we mean. It's simply to acknowledge that there are multiple dynamics and dimensions that are present within conversations. Shauna Hawking is a thought leader, keynote speaker, and writer with 20 years' experience working in leadership development. She's the author of One Bold Move a Day and the host of the One Bold Move a Day podcast. Shauna shared with me that she values environments where people are empowered to speak up, but that it's not always safe to be forthcoming. And while this can be true anywhere, for our purposes, we're focused on work. There's a real power play in speaking truth. And there's unfortunately ramifications sometimes in giving feedback up or managing up. And that goes back to whether or not there's psychological safety in the workplace and whether or not people really support their team members to be able to say the hard things and in order to learn from them and make better work environments. I think I've been in situations where I thought I could say something and I've learned that really that maybe wasn't exactly what someone was just wanted me to say everything was fine and everything was going to be okay. What did you do when you were in that situation and you said something and took that risk and it wasn't safe? Well, I mean, I'm sure I internalized it and made me more reticent to bring it up the next time. And I think that that happens in little moments and in big moments when people feel like their boss isn't interested in their feedback or doesn't have time for them, then they are less likely to bring it up again in the future. And I think that we can make this more likely for people to give us feedback, to care enough, to tell us the hard things by consistently asking for feedback so that if we, in a rush, in a moment, are not showing our true interest, that we know that we're creating enough space on other occasions to help really show our intentions. Assuming we intend to create safer environments for others and to speak the truth ourselves, we need skills and practices we can utilize. Asking for feedback is one tangible thing we can do. Another skill that can be helpful to cultivate is the ability to communicate differently in different contexts. When we can bring different elements of ourselves forward based on our audience, we become more effective communicators. Here's Travel again. I think that I realized early that the experiences that I've had in terms of having to just navigate and adapt to so many different types of spaces was actually a skill set. So I mentioned I was a military brat. I moved every two to three years. I made friends, had to lose friends and make new friends. I had to be a part of different clubs and activities as a means of ingratiating myself into particular spaces. And then as I got older, I think that I was a Black queer person beginning my journey of gender nonconformity at Morehouse College, a historically Black, all-male, historically Baptist institution that has a very clear history of being, to put it lightly, antagonistic toward queer and trans folks. Even as I was developing in my identity, I had to also realize the space that I was in and figure out ways to, to navigate that and make that into an experience that I can look back on and not have a whole lot of trauma attached to. Same thing at the LA Times, or I would say at Stanford, it was about how can I take this space and make it work for me? And I think when I got into my career, I realized that that was a skill set that I could exploit that a lot of people just don't have because they haven't had to have it. 
And so I realized how that kind of foundation could be useful for me to not only carve out space for myself, but also carve out space for like other folks like me that I know are in the midst around me, but may not feel able or emboldened to like really assert themselves in that particular way. I know how to talk to white people. I know how to talk to people in power and I know how to do it in a way to like whatever I want to do or get accomplished. I know how to, to approach it in a way that satisfies whatever foolish concerns the people in power have, but allow me to maintain a certain level of authenticity and control as well. And I think that is the thing that has separated me from other Black folks, queer folks, brown folks, trans folks that I've worked with and been in space with who just haven't had that skill set. And so I try to use that skill set not only for my own benefit, but for the benefit of everyone else as well. Likewise, Timothy Welbeck, the director for the Center of Anti-Racism Research and an assistant professor of instruction at Temple University, a civil rights attorney, a scholar of law, race, and culture, a writer, and a hip-hop artist, shared that he intentionally communicates differently with different audiences, and that it's been his ability to do that that has enabled him to have a multidisciplinary impact. Only academics are reading these peer-reviewed journals. It's not a shade to any of my colleagues, but we're the only ones reading these things. And so as an academic, I know I need to write these things periodically, But what I have also found is that the work that has had the greatest levels of impact are things that the public can understand. Things like Michelle Alexander's A New Jim Crow or things like uh, Isabella Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns or Ibram Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning. These types of iconic works become iconic in part or even Nicole Hannah Jones' 1619 Project. They take really weighty ideas and rigorous research and bring it to you in a way that you can understand. That's one of the things I think is so valuable about Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th and that she takes what were once reams and reams of information and like books and trees and encyclopedias and studies. And she gets subject matter experts to come together and to sit you down and say, can you invest an hour and a half and listen to this and to hear them make this plain, so to speak. And so I endeavor to do the same thing. I write things like the Arlen Specter article, but then I also write for the Huffington Post or the Philadelphia Inquirer or WHYY. Those contributing articles are going to meet more people where they are, and they also have a wider viewership. For example, I feel like more people read my article for Huffington Post about Meek Mill than have read either one of my journal articles. But I'm still talking about very similar things, though. And so there's that. And then my music is is approaching the same ideas. So for me, I look at it that way. It's the same idea, and I'm going to give you three different ways to digest it. So if you're the type to read an academic article, I can give you that. We can go footnotes, citations, all of that. If you're somebody who would like to read an op-ed right before you go into the office or maybe while you're eating breakfast or like at lunch or maybe while you're scrolling on social media, I've got that for you. If you're somebody who just wants to listen to something, I've got that for you, too. So you can go and you can listen to music, too, and where sometimes I'm talking about the same things. And so that's how I approach it. And I drew that tiered approach because to have a true impact, people need to be able to access what we're doing. And if something's hiding behind a paywall or is using a bunch of 
SAT words and voluminous footnotes, people might miss that. But there are multiple ways that we can engage the same ideas. We can utilize different modalities, strategies, and approaches to share our perspectives. And cultivating the capacity to both share and listen differently, depending on the context and on our objectives, is useful personally and professionally, especially since differences in conversational styles have an impact on who is heard and how they're heard. Here's Deborah again. We have different conversational styles. If you speak to someone whose conversational style is relatively similar to yours, chances are you will think that they mean what you would mean if you said that in that way in that context, and you'd probably be pretty accurate. If your styles are different, when you assume that they might mean what you would mean if you said that in that context would not be accurate. And so it goes both ways. People are not understood are not understanding others, but even more important, it's on the basis of these ways of speaking that we draw conclusions about others' intentions and their abilities. In her interview, Deborah offered a number of examples of how stylistic differences lead us to draw arbitrary conclusions about others. For instance, some of us might perceive another person quietly listening to us without commenting as evidence of that person's interest whereas some of us might perceive that same listening style as the listener being checked out. Or we might think that those who listen along while saying, mm-hmm, or yeah, or right, interjecting as we speak, is being active and attentive, while others of us might see that same style of listening as rude and interruptive. Why is all this relevant? Well, Deborah told me that the impact of communication style goes far beyond what is and isn't said, and has implications for how people are perceived and treated. The reason conversational style is so important is that the effects are not about ways of speaking, the effects are about relationships, how we judge each other, how we evaluate each other, and and all the effects of that. In the workplace, it's extremely striking. First of all, you might not get credit for what you did. You might not get promoted or get the job that you want or not get hired if your style is mistaken. Of course, in a close relationship, it can be feelings are really hurt because there's a feeling you should understand me if anybody does. And so the stakes are higher. Think about a workplace, not only about promotions and uh, raises, whether you get what you deserve that way. If we're looking to foster more effective communication and closer relationships, we have to be willing to get to know what people are saying to us and to recognize that different things mean different things to different people in different contexts. In fact, factors such as style, culture, identity, and language can play a critical role in determining context. Sylvia Massiero is an assistant professor of information systems at the University of Oslo and the author of more than 20 peer-reviewed works in the domain of information and communication technology for development, also known as ICT4D. She co-edited the open access work COVID-19 from the margins, pandemic invisibilities, policies, and resistance in the datafied society. Sylvia told me a funny and illuminating story about how not understanding the contextual meaning of a specific phrase led her to completely misunderstand the context of a conversation. It was one of my first field trips to Kerala, to southern India. 
it was the first round of my PhD fieldwork. So I studied the digitalization of a system is called the public distribution system. It's the largest Indian food security program. And then progressively, it became involved with this digital identity system that I mentioned before. And in one of my first interviews, I had a translator because, uh, like I said, I didn't speak a word of the language. And people kept the person I was interviewing, a beneficiary of this uh, anti-poverty system, kept telling me, ah, you know, because my marriage is a love marriage. And my interpretation was, oh my gosh, this person really loves uh, their wife, right? Eh, it's a love marriage, it's a love marriage. And I was like, wow, how much love in a single interview? And then we debriefed with my translator and he said, Sylvia, you understood what it means by love marriage, right? And I'm like, of course, that they love their wife. He's like, Sylvia, no. It means that they ran away from the arranged marriage system to marry someone they loved. (laughs) Can you imagine my face in that moment? And I'm like, okay, so let's see if every single word with them, um, guess I said this story. I mean, and then we all had a, a sort of like, um, I don't even want to say a love because there is very little to love about a system that uh, um, uh, in a way doesn't leave, and I'm sorry to say, but especially women, much choice, even though this is very, very different across states, it's very, very different across, across countries eh? because I think, for example, Southern Italy still have a, a, has a very strong system of uh, not so independent decision of who marries whom. But I just thought, oh my gosh, the same word in a different setting might mean so, mean so different things. And there might be systems, for example, hierarchical system, decision systems. I mean, marriage is not a small decision, is it? I mean, I'm not married, but I just imagine is a bit of a decision. And words might mean so much in such a context. So I guess that moment really made me grow as a researcher. Recognizing the disparity between the speaker's intent and her interpretation helps Sylvia to learn and grow, which are among the many benefits of cross-cultural, cross-language communication. Kelly Clark shared about the expansion of thought and perspective that she's experienced as someone who has continued exposure to multiple languages in her professional life. Kelly is the chief culture officer at Aeon United. She directs the firm's strategies for inclusive people leadership and culture initiatives, and she played a pivotal role in scaling Aeon's signature cultural workshop, leading Aeon United, to reach more than 8,000 colleagues virtually while maintaining more than 98% positive feedback scores. Kelly shared that she's been enriched by the multicultural, multilingual environment at Aeon. What's so interesting for me is that language is actually a very easy way to start to breathe life into what does it mean to have global norms, but a local expression of that. And so we've been making sure that we do focus more on languages and when our materials are communicated, that they're not always just available in English, but that they're available languages that our colleagues speak. And then, you know, for me personally, I speak a little bit of Spanish. And so I try when I'm communicating or meeting with our colleagues in Latin America or in Europe, I try. It, it, often I need the help of Google Translate and I need to think for a minute. But I think doing things like going out of our own comfort zone to 
sort of meet in the middle is super important. And then we're also leveraging technology. So technology can play a key role in helping with this. We have some accessibility features that we've been rolling out. We have a translator, our meeting platform. So if you're meeting with colleagues that speak multiple languages, they can choose how the meeting is translated for them. And so there are a lot of ways that you can do this if you're kind of mindful of it being something that's important and something that actually creates a sense of inclusion and belonging for people when they feel like they can connect in ways that are meaningful for them. Hey listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. Anel Duarte specializes in facilitating one-on-one and group practices under the trauma-sensitive and trauma-informed lenses. A trauma survivor herself, Anel holds safe space for participants to explore their internal experiences through yoga, body movement, meditation, the use of rituals, and breathing techniques. Additionally, her interests center in intersectional social justice and gender violence advocacy in order to dismantle systems of oppression and to create a world where it is possible to live our lives in dignity, free from patriarchal, colonial, and capitalist violence. Prior to our interview, Anel, for whom English is a second language, expressed feeling apprehensive because our interview was taking place in English. She told me she hoped she'd be able to express herself to me and to you the way she wanted. And as our interview was coming to its conclusion, I wanted to know more about her experiences around self-expression as a multilingual speaker. If you're comfortable talking about it, because I think it's something that you've shared offline, you shared it before this interview. I think about what it is to be someone who is multilingual and how that I don't know. In so, I think in so many ways, like I admire that so much. And I think it's amazing that your brain can do those translations. But what you shared with me is that it does amplify your anxiety sometimes showing up in these moments and feeling like, oh, am I going to be able to express myself? And so I'm curious, are you comfortable speaking about that on the record? Because I just think it's, to me, it's probably like a really important experience that happens to a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's really heartbreaking to be losing so much lexic, like in my own language. Uh, I just can't sometimes make sense of what I want to say because I have words or an entire sentence in a different language, in another language, which isn't the one I'm speaking at the moment. And then it's like, oh, no, (laughs) intrusive. 
it's it's very intrusive. So then I I feel like I don't make sense of of what I want to say. I don't sound eloquent and I don't sound wise enough as I would like to sound. And yeah, you know, so yes, that affects in how I perceive myself and how I present myself uh, in the world. And yes, I, I know some other people struggle with this. And it's a real, like the struggle is real. The struggle is real. Like we, we are, as, as you said, as you mentioned, we are quite uh, lucky to then be able to talk different languages. But in a way, then it's, it's also limiting and, and heartbreaking when you can't find the words in your mother tongue. You know, and you've shared about your internal experience of that. Has it impacted how people have treated you? Like in those moments when maybe you don't have access to a word or you mentioned that you're married to a British man in the UK or like, I don't know, have you experienced moments where people Mm -hmm. have either treated you differently or perhaps underestimated certain aspects of your intelligence or something because of those moments of not having access to the language in the same way that you might want to yeah yeah there is definitely that component and even though it's not it might not be that frequently but I mean sometimes when I'm tired well yeah essentially when I'm tired or I don't know my my mind is elsewhere and I can't make that clear sense of what I'm trying to say then yes I, I feel people underestimate me And in a way, they are polite or they look like they're trying to be polite and and all of that. But some people, they aren't. Some people, they're just like losing their patience and just promptly dismiss whatever you have to say. And yeah, they want to move on to, to what's next. This inattentive, what's next, your unimportant way of treating certain people at certain times blocks effective communication and can cause the person speaking to shut down. But it can also mean that if that person does continue speaking, the prospective listener misses out because they're not paying attention and are therefore not able to avail themselves of all that the person they're ignoring has to offer. My cousin, Rachel Lyons, is the executive director at Space for Humanity, a nonprofit organization which aims to make spaceflight available as a way to expand human perspectives. She's the former vice chair of the board of directors of Students for the Exploration and Development of Space USA. And she shared with me that an inattentive audience is the surest way to catapult her into anxiety. She said that that's true whether she's on stage, leading a meeting, or speaking one-on-one. Having a present audience makes the biggest difference. One time I almost had an anxiety attack on stage was literally because the room was ginormous. It was these round tables. It was like not very many people dispersed throughout this giant room, almost all of them on their computers, not really paying attention to me. It's so hard to speak for people who aren't being attentive because there's like an exchange happening. And the best talk I ever gave, which was literally like two weeks before the anxiety attack on stage, it was like a full audience of rows of chairs of everyone facing towards me, wide-eyed, listening. And it was the best talk I've ever given. And it was literally, these were two weeks apart from each other. And it was actually the same talk. The presence of the audience 
makes the biggest difference. So that's been a really big thing is like, sometimes if I have friends in the audience, I'll ask that they give me their full attention because it makes such a big difference for me when I'm, when I'm up there. And I would imagine that it's the same, I mean, maybe even more so or, or parallel with one-on-one conversation, just that in general, when people are present, it's much easier to connect. <laughs> I mean, totally. 100%. Presence is a really big thing for me too. I don't know if it is for other people. I don't know if it's just me, but it's even been like at my team meetings, like an ongoing thing. I'll like, I'll set the context at the beginning and I'll be like requesting everyone's full presence for this meeting, knowing that we can actually be a lot more efficient and like, and get more done if we're all fully present with each other. So how have I done that? Yeah. I would say like, that's, that's something I do during my meetings is, is set that context. I think if I'm bringing my full presence, then I know that I'm more likely to be met in it. Being present in our interactions increases our capacity for empathy, creates greater receptivity and decreases the likelihood of misunderstandings. It also enables us to share at a deeper level, which is required if we're going to create spaces where communication is both safe and constructive. I spoke with Tanner Gears, president and founder of Accessibility Officer, a data-driven disability inclusion firm. Tanner also serves as a board member for Menus for All, recently co-authored Foresight Augmented Reality's solution proposal for the U.S. Department of Transportation's Inclusive Design Challenge, and is a U.S. Paralympian, World Championship team member. His strategic business partner is Will Bubinek, the founder and CEO of Nebula Media Group, whose mission it is to ensure that websites are accessible so that people with disabilities can access them. From audits and fixes to training and coaching, Nebula Media Group provides customized accessibility solutions so companies can attain, maintain, and sustain a true accessibility and compliance program at their organization. Here's Tanner. We really have to be, you know, start to become more fearless as as a society and, and from, you know, from a corporate perspective. We're so afraid to have the tough conversations. Later in our interview, Tanner doubled down on this same point. We got to have the tough conversations with ourselves and our team. And it's okay to have these tough conversations. It's okay to be wrong, to not be aware, to learn, to understand, to grow, and to challenge. Those are all positive things that have tension and can be scary. But if we approach them strategically, if we approach them with integrity, and we approach them with the intention of being better, then we can create positive outcome through that fear. Having tough conversations is a prerequisite for improving workplace culture in America, which is something Elizabeth Liz Taylor seeks to do in her work. Liz is an assistant professor in the Sport and Recreation Management Department at Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Her work examines gender discrimination, homophobia, sexual harassment, and assault within the athletic industry. The more conversations that we can have, the better. The more questions that we can raise and and the more that we can challenge folks in this industry and every industry as it relates to inclusion and workplace culture, I think the better. For many people, that first tough conversation begins with negotiating their salary and benefit packages, asking for what they feel they deserve, and being willing to talk about the value they'll bring to an organization and their expectations around compensation. 
Crystal shared the findings of a collaborative research study during which she and other colleagues looked at the relationship between conflict management frameworks and negotiation styles. So we studied professionals who were enrolled in MBA classes at George Mason University, and we also studied faculty who had just recently gone through the salary negotiation process. And it was pretty salient for me because I was going on the job market and entering this process myself. So I was sort of like, well, what do people do? Am I doing what everybody else does? Or, you know, am I anomalous? And, you know, actually doing the study was helpful for me to be aware of some of the pitfalls that people can fall into to try to avoid following in their footsteps. The study Crystal mentioned focused on how negotiation practices impact a person's salary and benefits. But it's important to note that the ramifications went far beyond employees' initial onboarding packages. It's well documented that starting salaries can and do have long-term implications throughout a person's career trajectory. Most raises and bonuses are based off base salary. And when seeking alternate employment, many prospective employers will ask about current salary before extending an offer. But even beyond that, salaries and benefits have a host of quality of life ramifications. And according to Crystal, how people saw negotiation and whether they saw it as a risk determined not only whether they'd negotiate, but how they'd negotiate. So we had looked at risk aversion. And so we found that people who are more risk averse, not surprisingly, are less likely to avoid negotiations altogether. So a a portion of our sample just just didn't even negotiate. They took their first offer. We also looked at a variable called integrative attitudes, whether we look at negotiation as a win-win or like a winner-take-all. And that affected the strategies that people would adopt. And so we looked at a few different strategies. So individuals could compete where they basically say, well, I have this other offer. Are you going to match it? You're threatened to walk away. So it's a much more kind of aggressive, assertive style of negotiation. We looked at collaboration, which is approaching it from a, okay, well, if you give me this, then I can give you this, you know, looking for the, the happy medium. In compromise, it's sort of a step down. In compromise, maybe you're you're asking. For, for something, but ultimately you give in to what the organization is putting on the table. Accommodating is just sort of agreeing to what the organization wants to do, and then avoiding is just not even trying to have that conversation. And so we did find that things like a risk aversion affected the way that people negotiated. So either they either didn't negotiate or they were more likely to take on passive tactics. Um, individuals who had more integrative attitudes, not surprisingly, were more likely to you know, collaborate and to try to see the win-win. We also looked at gender because we thought that maybe negotiation style could be something to explain the gender gap, that maybe women approach negotiation in different ways. Um, and we found that women were no less likely to negotiate than male counterparts. So they weren't less likely to avoid. They were also no more or less likely to engage in competitive strategies. We did, however, find that they were more likely to adopt more integrative attitudes, which could affect them approaching it in a more collaborative manner. And we ultimately found that people who competed raised their salary by the most. Most organizations, perhaps they would require that you furnish this alternative offer, but it could be beyond just, I have this other offer, give me what I want or I'm going to walk. It could just be threats of, I'm going to walk. This is what I want. 
it's really just a more in your face style of negotiation. And, and anecdotally, when we were talking to the hiring managers, they had said that, you know, we do tend to, you know, if we have this high performing person that we really want and they're competitive and they're demanding to get this, maybe do what we can to, to get it done for them. But we remember that once they join the organization. And so once they join and they're trying to make those demands, maybe we're a little less likely to try to meet those demands than somebody who was more willing to work with us during the early negotiation process. So the long-term effects of being really dominant, we couldn't determine that you know, empirically, but anecdotally, it suggests there's suggests that it could backfire and that maybe collaboration is better for fostering a long-term relationship. And I suppose the good news story is, is that we did find that those who collaborated raised their salary more than those who, who didn't negotiate or, or used more passive tactics. But we found also that they were able to get more non-salary concessions from their employer. So maybe they were willing to give a little bit of salary, but were able to get you know, the work schedule that they wanted or the time off and whatnot. It's easy to see how collaborative communication whether it be as a means of initial salary negotiation or problem solving and teamwork within an organization, is likely to increase employee-employer cooperation and alignment, which are really important if we hope to foster healthy, psychologically safe organizational cultures. Plus, organizations that are willing to take a collaborative approach tend to have higher employee satisfaction and engagement. After all, wouldn't you rather be part of an organization where every person at every level has a voice than an organization where only leadership is listened to? Assuming, of course, that you're not a dictatorial leader. Absolutely, you would want that. Anyway, that sort of leadership style is becoming less and less tenable in the modern workplace. In fact, Shauna told me that within organizations, it's important for communication to go in all directions. Well, I think this is important as a leader to always be seeking feedback. And again, it's the modeling of giving and receiving feedback that helps others feel like they can do that. And by the way, how we speak to ourselves is included as part of that multidirectional approach. Yes, in every direction. And Dara, when you're talking, I can't help but think also how we communicate to ourselves is important in this. We write ourselves out of the story before we're even starting it. So yes, how you talk to your boss or your partner or to your team or to your family or your colleagues, all of those things are important. And also how we talk to ourselves. Women in particular, we downplay our own accomplishments. We say no before we say yes. We internalize the world around us such that we don't believe in our abilities to be successful when we often could be. It's important to acknowledge that self-talk can be complicated by a host of different factors, including trauma histories, internalized biases, negative self-conceptions, overinflated egos, poor modeling, mental health challenges, and too many other factors to list. Here's Anel again. We know, like, when we struggle with our mental health issues, that voice could be very convincing, very determinant, very invasive. And sometimes when we suggest people to listen to themselves, to connect to their intuition and all of that, uh, it can be very tricky. And I can, <laughs> I can speak for myself. Sometimes it is very tricky not to listen to this other voice because of like how assertive 
it sounds <laughs> convincing. But yeah, I guess we need to to really, really be able to look at everything with honesty and humility and just say, is that tricky voice that it isn't my intuition. It's trying to force me into doing something rather than just being compassionate, rather than just being kind of gentle on me and guide me through what I really need. Hey, listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. If we want to become more constructive within our conversations, we have to be willing to form relationships with ourselves and with others. In workplace settings, many of us can understandably be reluctant to do that, especially if we've been scarred by past experiences or are currently in a toxic workplace environment. But even those of us who have psychological safety at work might be scared to develop close relationships at work out of fear that having too much of a rapport will erode professional barriers. But that hasn't been Amanda Arias's experience. Amanda is the Director of People and Culture at Jubilee Media. Prior to her current position, she accumulated more than 10 years of experience helping growth-centric startups build high-performing teams, and her professional motto is treat people like people. It's happened so many times where I've had drinks with people and we've had a great time and we've laughed until our faces hurt. And then, you know, I get approached by their managers saying, you know, we have a performance issue here and we need to take care of of this. And, you know, having those conversations is never fun. One thing about me, I'm always nervous going into those conversations. I'm going to be honest here. I'm not stoic and very like confident about telling somebody that they need to work on something, but I think the important piece is keeping that vulnerability in mind. I'm uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable. That's okay. Let's get through this. Let's talk about it. And I think always going into those conversations too with a supportive and solution-based mindset is how you get through it. It's, hey, I understand you're struggling here. This is really hard for me to talk about. And I know it's even harder for you to receive, but I'm here to support you no matter what. My door is open. We can go for a walk after this, whatever you want. 
I'm here. So it's really just making yourself, keeping yourself vulnerable. We're all vulnerable and understanding that you don't have to pretend to be comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. Ironically, being able to say this is uncomfortable tends to make things more comfortable, just as communicating about differences in communication tends to strengthen the effectiveness of our interactions. Here's Deborah again. Another thing you can do is meta-communicate, talk about the communication, and be very forthright about it. You know, I'm, I'm feeling uncomfortable for these reasons, and I'm wondering, could it be something about our styles that's different? The willingness to communicate about our communication can in and of itself build the kind of healthy and appropriate workplace intimacy that increases productivity and performance. But even more importantly, it makes people want to go to work every day. Let's return to Amanda. Vulnerability opens up a lot of doors for people to feel like they can be honest and for people to feel like they don't have to hide who they are, which really allows us to connect with them on a deeper level, understand what's motivating them in life, understand what may be holding them back. And then from there, we can really focus on their success as an individual in the company. So I think for us, it's vulnerability in the workplace can be scary, but if you're doing it in a really authentic way, It's so good for the business when people feel like they can be themselves and bring their best selves to work. You're going to get the results that you want. You're going to get the creativity that you want. That's all we're we're looking for. What might it look like to practice vulnerability, accountability, and empathy at work? The answer may be different depending on the scope and substance of your job. But here's what Amanda did as the Director of People and Culture at Jubilee. When I joined in December, I met with every single employee on the team and I told them, I want to know everything, the good, bad, the ugly, why you love working here, why you hate working here. And we went through every single thing. And I sat down with our leadership team and, you know, I had a tough conversation about holding ourselves accountable for the mistakes that we made. And we shared that openly with our team. I think being vulnerable also means being really transparent about where you mess up and not hiding from that, not pretending like things didn't happen, not pretending like you dropped the ball on something, but really owning up to it and just saying, hey, we messed up and we're aware of it and we're working on it. And we want to solicit your feedback. If there's still something we're not doing, tell us what we don't know we can't fix. And this is a safe environment for you to do so. And so we've really cultivated that. If you're in a position in an organization where you have agency to affect outcomes, think about whether you're doing your part to create an environment where people feel that feedback will be met with appreciation rather than anger. But to the earlier points interviewees made about making mistakes, it's important to acknowledge that as people and as professionals, the goal is to continue to learn, develop, and evolve. In order to do those things, we have to practice. Here's Tom again. How do people learn these skills? I mean, that's one of the challenges with these skills, right? Is that you don't learn these skills by reading a book or a Harvard Business Review paper, or even, you know, a brilliant paper presented at the American Society of Engineering Management. You learn these skills by practice. It's like almost anything else, except in the workplace, especially in a leadership context, where's our practice venue? If you're a musician, It's really obvious when it's practice and when it's a performance. If there's paying customers out there in the seats, it's not practice. 
or a sports team. If the other team, if the opposition's on the field, it's not practice anymore. Mm-hmm. But in running an organization, when's the practice time? You can't go to your boss and say, hey, you know what? The financial results this quarter don't matter. This is only a practice quarter. We can't do that. So we have to practice while we play. So that's really challenging. It's one of the challenges of getting good at these types of skills is we have to understand the concept, the scaffolding. Okay, this is how you delegate. This is what we know about holding people accountable. Now you got to try it. You got to practice it. You know, you got to go try it and you got to be mindful about, okay, I just did it and I did it the way Edwards told me to do it and it didn't work. Okay, what's wrong here? Did I misdiagnose the situation? Did I misapply the skill or is Edwards full of smoke. And I need to go back and call him out and challenge him on why this didn't work. And I encourage my students to do this actually. And then we learn from that, right? It's mindful practice. Okay. Okay. This worked this time. Good. Now when something works, we don't declare I'm a genius. I've got this right. Because you may have accidentally gotten it right. There's a term for that, right? An accidental success or something like that. So you got to keep your mind open that, okay, I got it right this time. That doesn't mean I'm going to get it right every time. Let's try it again. And okay, and calibrate my approach. And this is how we learn. And it's just like learning to play a musical instrument or shoot baskets or anything. It's practice and then look at the results and then adjust what you're doing and practice again. Practicing while we play can be challenging, but it can also be, well, playful. Here's Anel again. So I was like really nervous of doing this, being interviewed and, and such. So I was pretending with this wand, I was pretending. <laughs> With, with my magic wand, I was pretending that I'd be interviewed and then my husband was helping me out. How oh, bless him. So he was asking me the question and then I like passing my wand on me and then just pretending that we were in this interview. So that helped a lot with just releasing this nervousness. And I guess also... It's very important to bring some humor into what we do. It's essential, yeah, to to bring a sense of playfulness and and courage into what we do. Yeah, not taking everything so seriously. Laughter, love, joy, camaraderie, empathy, connection. The more we work to foster those things within ourselves and our environments, the better off we'll be. Imagine for a moment that everyone working today was able to safely express themselves to their colleagues. Wouldn't our workplaces be safer, more fun, and more uplifting? Having said that, it's important to acknowledge that psychological safety almost always has to begin with ourselves. We build inner awareness, and then, when we have enough external safety, we can bring that awareness forward into our work and our relationships. Anel shared with me that as a trauma-informed yoga and meditation practitioner, the work she does has ramifications that extend far beyond the mat. The work that we do together in, in the relationship together, where we find tools to support them during times of stress, that can be then later on move translated into other areas of of their life and including work including their own jobs and all of that so if they find that sense of agency they might be more prepared to be in those intimidating work environments or on the other hand if 
within the relationship that we are building where we share the power then if they themselves are in a higher position in in their jobs then they might find also less intimidating to give some of their power away to then kind of balance that relationship with their employees yeah it's a truly interesting exploration Speaking of inner exploration that translates outward, Rachel shared that she sees a connection between self-exploration, space exploration, embodiment, communication, and paradigm shifts. I would say so many of us exist just in our heads. It's just like constant thoughts and blah, 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 and whatever, and anxiety. And that can be like a very automatic thing is just to constantly have the voice going, you know, like meditation teachers talk about that too. And so for me, learning to balance it, I'll say like inhabiting my body, like just like being in my body and being able to ex- express myself through my body. That's that's the movement and dance part. It's been really, really healthy for me in a lot of ways and being able to not get stuck in thought loops and move past anxieties and like continue growing as a human being. And sometimes it's like we try and solve the problem in our head, but the answer to the problem doesn't exist. It's like, it doesn't exist in the paradigm that you're currently in. And sometimes it just, it like literally will take me like getting into my body to be able to like transcend the problem. Just like leaving earth helps us transcend the problems that exist here. If we're willing to build self-awareness, to engage in constructive conversations, to listen and learn, we become part of shaping environments that bring out the best in people. Or we become aware that certain environments don't suit us, which then frees us to pursue the environments that do. Here's Tom again. I'm a big believer that if, and I got no data to back this up, this is just my humble opinion, that career success is based on an alignment of your personal values with the values, um, what the organization values. And if there's a disconnect there and you're just trying to navigate the shoals in a way to climb the ladder, go someplace where you don't have to do that where you don't have to hide who you are. My hope is that all of us can develop communication skills and strategies that enable us to listen to and learn from the perspectives and experiences of others, and that we can be part of co-creating workplace environments where it's safe for all of us and for everyone to share feelings, ideas, perspectives, and experiences. Because everyone has something worth expressing, and everyone deserves attention and care. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Thank you to this episode's guests. Tamar Pearson-Brown, Jeff Maynard, Caroline Heffernan, Tom Edwards, Crystal Harold, Travel Anderson, Marta Russick, Lily Zhang, Jackie Lipton, Deborah Tannen, Shauna Hawking, Timothy Welbeck, Sylvia Massiero, Kelly Clark, Anel Duarte, Rachel Lyons, Tanner Gears, Will Bubinek, Liz Taylor, and Amanda Arias, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. 
Every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with Azaria Keys, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant, Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant, Zach James, Co-Collaborator and Marketing Manager, Paul Kondo, Assistant Producer and Editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, audio technician and consultant, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, Dara Lise Lyons, in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.